Well, they say, don't they, that uh, good things come in small packages? Well, this evening we have a, a very small package, don't we, in the book of Ruth. Only four chapters long, much shorter than the other books that we've looked at uh, so far on a Sunday evening. Yet it packs a lot into those four chapters, uh, as we'll see. No one knows exactly who wrote the book of Ruth. Jewish tradition says it was Samuel, but that's unlikely, as it seems that Samuel dies before David actually becomes king, which is one of the things that it points forward to. It seems to be written after that time, and there just seems to be some distance between that time and the writing, as certain customs have to be explained as they belong to how things were done in the former times. Samuel was only a couple of generations later. Whoever it was, they knew the story, and they wanted to tell it. And it's quite unique at this point, as it's the first book that really just follows one family and one set of events. If you think about it, it could easily belong to the end of Judges or the beginning of 1 Samuel, but here it is, it stands as a book by itself. So what is it about? What's the plot? Well, the plot of Ruth is a classic tale of boy meets girl, boy and his brother die, girl goes off to live with her mother-in-law, who hooks her up with another boy. Okay, maybe not so classic, but that's basically the plot of the book. The setting for the, the book is the period of Judges, it's a chaotic time, and it's a bit of a chaotic story in many ways. There's a famine in Judah, and a man called Elimelech, he and his wife Naomi and their two sons, move from Bethlehem in Judah to live among the Moabites, the descendants of Lot and his daughters, an enemy of Israel. While they're there, Elimelech dies, and Naomi's left with her two sons who married Moabite women. Now that's not specifically forbidden in the law, but on the whole, it's not a great idea. The two sons die, leaving Naomi with two Moabite daughters-in-law, no grandchildren, and therefore nobody to look after her as she gets older. In those days, there were no old-age pensions, and being a widow and childless would leave you destitute. The norm would be for her daughter-in-laws to marry another of the sons that she had, and provide heirs for their dead brothers. But she has no other sons. So Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem. She's heard that there's food there, and one daughter-in-law goes back with her, and the other one goes uh, back to the Moabites. Ruth refuses to go. She says in uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth quite emotionally joins herself to Naomi. She joins herself to God's people, and she joins herself to Israel's God. She swears on Yahweh himself that she will not leave her. So the two of them head to Bethlehem. Naomi's understandably low, having lost her husband and sons in just seemingly a short time. She tells people not to call her Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. So if you ever meet a Naomi, you can tell them it means pleasant. But Mara instead, which means bitter. It's the sort of opposite of what her name was before. It's all sounding pretty depressing, isn't it? But... In Bethlehem, there is a man called Boaz, a relative of Naomi, a worthy man, literally mighty in worth. And as Ruth sets out gleaning, collecting overlooked rain from fields, she just so happens to end up gleaning the field of Boaz, Ruth's relative. 
He's clearly a believer. He goes around blessing the people in the Lord's name and they reply in the Lord's name too. When he sees what Ruth is doing, he insists that she reap only in his fields and stays close to those harvesting in his fields so that she's protected. He warns his own men off her and allows her to eat and drink with his workers. In fact, he even gets his workers to leave behind some bundles of wheat and things for her to pick up on the way as she's gleaning. Now when Naomi, her mother-in-law, finds out, she's overjoyed. And Ruth keeps gleaning all the way through the barley and wheat harvest, providing for herself and for her mother-in-law. Now Naomi decides it's time for Ruth to have her own family. So she devises a scheme to bag Boaz. That's the scale, probably the operation name, you know, Operation Bag Boaz uh, for Ruth. We'll see that in more detail in the second point, but the plan is successful. And Boaz sets in motion things so that he can marry Ruth straight away. The thing is, though, to look after Naomi, he has to marry her as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. That was someone who was a near relative who will perpetuate the line of his dead relative and look after his family. He's effectively standing in for any of Naomi's other sons who would have instead taken that place. So any children would be classed as Naomi's grandchildren and would inherit Naomi's family land. There's a problem though. There always is in these stories, isn't there? Whenever there's a love story, there's always a problem that you've got to overcome. The problem is that there's another relative that lives in Bethlehem who's closer, a closer relative than him. So Boaz goes and finds him and he tells him that Elimelech's land is up for sale. And the guy thinks, yeah, brilliant. Sounds like a bargain. But when Boaz tells him that that will also mean he needs to perpetuate the name of his dead relative, he backs off. Doesn't want to risk his own inheritance. So Boaz redeems the land, and Naomi and Ruth along with it. The other man relinquished his right and proved it by giving his sandal to Boaz in the sight of the elders at the gate. It's a bit of a weird thing, but at this time seemingly it's the equivalent to a receipt or a legal contract, you know, he did, he did give me the land, he did promise to sell it to me, look, I've got his sandal to prove it, that would be what he would say. So Boaz and Ruth marry, and have a baby boy, Obed. And then in Ruth 4, 14 and 15, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel, so shall he shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Obed has a son called Jesse, and Jesse has a son, a little shepherd boy, called David. And David, of course, is the future great king of Israel. It's a happy ending at the end of the book. A redeemer has come and rescued her. And it's resulted in a king who will come and rescue Israel. But one thing we do address, that's basically the plot of the book, one thing we do need to address is that uh, scandal in chapter 3, the, the part where uh, it's the bag of Boaz operation. Uh, children may want to close their ears at this point. It might be for a little while though, so uh, maybe just uh, be careful what you hear. Okay, the scandal. In chapter 3, 1 to 5, Naomi gives Ruth some instructions on how to get Boaz to marry her, and so provide for Ruth and herself. And this has been the subject of some debate over the years. It's one of the things that people debate about the book of Ruth. Because their instructions are somewhat strange. 
Now, whenever I've heard it preached, it's been made into some obscure ritual where this was a way for women to propose to men. Uh, to, to men, sorry. Which supposedly would only happen under certain conditions. So in the UK, apparently, it's okay for a woman to propose to a man on the 29th of February. I don't know if you've heard that before. As though if he's waited four years and he starts to propose, you've got the right every four years uh, to ask him. The problem is, though, as we look at what happens here, there's no evidence that that's actually any sort of ritual. There's no evidence that it's done elsewhere. It seems to be more to come from a desire to make Bible characters seem more innocent than they were. But the Bible is not like the Quran, where all the major characters are presented as morally perfect. The Bible is not a gallery of examples to follow. We saw that clearly, didn't we, in the book of Judges. The thing is that we're actually to look at this as a real story with real people who have imperfections. And the other thing that points me to that conclusion is the New Testament and the way that the New Testament treats Ruth. In Matthew chapter 1, Ruth is listed as one of the ancestors of Jesus. And in Matthew 1, there are five women listed there. Number one, Tamar, who's a Gentile woman who pretends to be a working girl, let's say, and has a baby with her father-in-law. The second one is Rahab, a Gentile woman who is a working girl. The third one is Bathsheba, the wife of a Gentile man who commits adultery with King David. And then the fourth one, apart from Ruth, uh, is Mary, who was not a Gentile, and though she didn't do anything wrong in that area, she was no doubt maligned and accused for having fallen pregnant outside of marriage, but that was of course by the Holy Spirit. The other person that's in that list is Ruth, the Moabite. She's also a Gentile. Now Mary is supposed to be the exception in that group of five. She's not a Gentile, and she didn't do anything wrong in that area, despite accusations. But Mary only works as the exception if there's something a bit dodgy about Ruth. Does that make sense? Now, for the record, I don't think that Ruth does anything that's actually sinful. But following Naomi's vice, she may have uh, left the impression that she had. Come with me to chapter 3, if you can, and have a look at what happens uh, in chapter 3 on that uh, story. If you glance down chapter 3, you'll see what happens, the plan. Naomi tells her to go and wash herself before she goes to Boaz. She tells her to doll herself up, if you like. Then she tells her to go in secret to the threshing floor. She tells her to wait until everyone has had their meal and drunk their booze. And in fact, verse 7 tells us that Boaz's heart was merry. He had a few drinks. It's the same phrase that's used for the men of Gibeah before they try and attack the Levite and his concubine. So she's to watch after he's had a few drinks, where he goes down to bed for the night. And then presumably, when they're all asleep, she's to go lay at his feet. She's then to go and cover his feet, presumably so he wakes up in the middle of the night. Now, some commentators make the word feet to be a euphemism for another part of the body. Uh, and it is sometimes used that way in the Bible. But personally, I think it's just his feet. It's just an idea to, to wake him up. So the scene is set. Think about it this way. Boaz has had a heavy night of drinking, potentially, or certainly a few drinks. And he wakes up in the middle of the night to find that he's lying next to a girl. What is he to think? It's either that he thinks he has done something and now must marry her, or that she is suggesting that they do something. 
Either way, Boaz understands what's going on. He sends her off with six measures of barley for Naomi, seemingly to reassure Naomi that something is going to happen. He makes sure that nobody knows that she was there, which again is another clue that something strange is going on, and he starts to organise the marriage that same day. What we're told again and again about Boaz is that he's an honourable man. And he's doing something here that is honourable. So he is doing what we're told throughout that he's honourable. Ruth has done exactly what she was told by her mother-in-law. Is actually her mother-in-law Naomi that's the sly fox here, if you think about it. The point is, though, like I said, we can't just take characters like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and make them into whitewashed saints. They were real people with real flaws. And it's not always a good idea to copy them. If you're single or watching online and you're single and you're looking for a partner, waiting till they're drunk and then sneaking into their bedroom while they're asleep is not a great way to go about it. That's not how you, you find yourself a partner. But it's showing us that these are real people. And it makes them Ruth fit with that list uh, in Matthew chapter 1. So we're not just to follow them as, as sort of moral examples, but there are things that we can learn from the book of Ruth. So our final point, the big theological implications. The first one is that we need a kinsman redeemer. One of the big themes of the book is that we need someone to come and redeem us. Someone of our own who can redeem us, buy us back. Now, of course, the great redeemer in the Old Testament is the Lord himself who redeems his people from slavery. That's the word that's used again and again in the Exodus. He's buying back his people. He's redeeming his people from slavery. But it's only with the coming of Christ that he truly becomes our kinsman redeemer. Christ, our brother, our kinsman, who took on our flesh and blood, that he might redeem our flesh and blood. Christ is our true kinsman redeemer, under whose wings we are truly safe and protected. He's the greater Boaz, a worthier man, to redeem his people. Secondly, the book is also a great reminder that God welcomes Gentiles. He welcomes non-Jews. Ruth is a Moabite, an enemy of Israel of the worst kind. Egyptians were allowed in the temple after three generations of naturalisation, if you like, after they lived in the land three generations. Same for Edomites. But for Moabites, it was ten generations that they had to live in the land before they could come into the temple. And yet Ruth here becomes part of God's people. An ancestor of King David, no less. A reminder that there are at least one Gentile in his genealogy. In fact, it mentions Tamar as well, the other Gentile that's mentioned in Matthew. So there are at least two Gentiles in David's genealogy. It was only a trickle in the Old Testament. The floodgates opened only in the New Testament, but it's showing us that that's there. It's possible. Here is a Moabite who accepts Israel's God as her God. So that's the, the second thing that we can see. The third thing that we see is kindness. That's one of the big themes of the book that's often overlooked, kindness. Naomi says Ruth has showed her kindness in verse 118, chapter 1, verse 18. The word is literally hesed, sovereign, uh, steadfast love, covenant love. The kindness normally associated with the kind of love that God shows to his people. Naomi also notes that Boaz has shown her kindness to Ruth. In protecting her. Same word in chapter 2, verse 20. And Boaz says that Ruth has showed him kindness 
when she chooses him over younger men. It's a book about kindness, in a way. You see these examples of people showing kindness. And it points us to God's merciful love towards us, treating us better than we deserve. And then finally, the book is a reminder that King David and King Jesus have an awesome pedigree. Okay, so Boaz and Ruth, they're not perfect, but they are awesome, aren't they? Ruth, in in the way that she selflessly cares for her mother-in-law, how she leaves her family and her homeland for the sake of Israel's God. In that sense, she saw her female Abraham, who leaves her home and goes where God has commanded. Boaz, in the way that he deals honourably with Naomi, and instead of scandalising her and treating her with contempt, marries her. That's his response to what's happening. There are foreshadows of Joseph here, who as a righteous man doesn't want to put Mary to shame. And in the end, he marries her, doesn't he? There are wonderful points, not to how much, so much how we should live, but how we can look forward to Christ, their great, 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 great grandson. And King David, who himself foreshadows Christ, probably more than anybody in the Old Testament. And he was just their great grandson. Indeed, this was probably the reason that the book was being written, to show us the sort of ancestry and pedigree of King David. To bolster him, to, to give you a bit of background to the man and the people that came before him. He comes with a great pedigree. But how much more Christ, David's greater son, who fits into a very small package, doesn't he, in the very town that we've been looking at, Bethlehem, at Christmas time. So as we read the book, let's let it point us to the greater David, the greater Boaz, and let us trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is that greater Boaz, he is that greater David that this book was pointing forward to. Father, we pray that we'd be astounded again at the way that you arranged events here, that it just so happened that all this happened to bring about the birth of David and ultimately the birth of the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to trust in you in all those millions of details in all our day that you are in control. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.